Good morning. I'm going to ask you an odd question. How big is salvation? (laughs) It is big, but only if you know what you're talking about, because it depends on what you're being saved from, doesn't it? (laughs) Some days I just need a little bit of help. Some days I want someone to take the day away and do it for me. (laughs) And sometimes we're talking about salvation in a biblical sense, and then it's huge. Um... But it's weird language when we start talking about salvation. We look at the story of Exodus. We've been in this for the last couple weeks. And part of what we saw last week as we looked at this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, which is really a confrontation between God and Pharaoh, is that everybody had too small of a vision, right? They were, Moses was concerned that the people get out of Egypt. Pharaoh was concerned that the people don't get out of Egypt. And God says you will know, right? I'm going to do sign after sign. I'm going to enact judgment. I'm going to show you my power, and you will know that I am the Lord. And it's bigger, right? And even that isn't as big as it gets. If you remember, and it's okay if you don't, it was a few weeks ago when we started talking about the Exodus, we were talking about freedom and how the Exodus is a story of freedom, but it's not just about freedom from Egypt. It's about freedom to worship the Lord and serve him and know him. Um, and so we tend to think too small. But a lot of the language we use around this when we want to think bigger is weird. And if you've been in church for a while, it's also comfortable and you like it. But when you start to reflect on it, it's weird. So we use words like redemption. This is not a word we use about people in day-to-day language. You redeem coupons. <laughs> right? Like gift certificates. They get redeemed. Um, what does it mean for a person? We talk about being set apart. And again, in the church, we know this language, but in the world, in day-to-day life, being set apart is either like a prideful thing because I'm better than you, or it's really awkward because there's no place for you, right? And we don't want to be set apart. We want to belong. We'd rather belong. One of the strangest phrases we use when we start talking about redemption and salvation and this kind of thing is being covered in the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, right? Normally you hear that phrase and it just kind of fits, but now it's like, yeah, that's kind of weird and icky a little bit. Um, (laughs) Right? I'm not particularly interested in getting covered in blood. Um, A lot of the strange language we use around the work of God comes from the Exodus. And it comes specifically from the three chapters that we're going to look at today, chapters 11, 12, and 13. And as we get into chapters 11, 12, and 13 of the story of the Exodus, it's not just that there's some strange language that we pull out of these texts. The story itself takes a strange turn in these chapters. And so we're going to look at these three chapters today and this central of the 11 signs that God displays for his people in Egypt. Um, And we're going to talk about what's going on and how this ties into our ideas of salvation, of being saved, of being rescued. And that maybe is a word that we find more easy to hook into what we need. 
We don't use redemption language. We don't even really use salvation language very often. But you don't go very long without seeing a news story about somebody being rescued. Rescued from a fire, rescued from a car wreck, rescued from being lost in the woods, rescued from a bear attack. There was that story here, it's probably over a month ago now, of the guy up at, uh, was it Ferguson Lake, who got chased into the lake by a bear, and the bear swam after him, and there was a woman with her dog on the other side and let him off the leash, and he was saved. He was rescued because this dog chased away the bear, right? We use rescued language, but we don't use these other ones, and a lot of them come from here, so we're going to dig into that today. Um, and this all ties into Jesus, so that's where we're headed in the end. Um, hopefully that's not a surprise. <laughs> so we've been reading the story, and by the time we get to chapter 11, if we've been paying attention, we have expectations. We know what's coming next. We know what's coming next because of the promises and the patterns that we've seen in the 10 chapters so far. God tells Moses at the very beginning of this journey how it's going to go. He says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him he has to let the people go, and he won't do it. So I'm going to show him my might. I'm going to show him these acts of judgment and these signs of, of the fact that I'm God and I'm in charge, and he still won't listen. And I'm going to give him sign after sign after sign until we come to the final one, the death of the firstborn. And when I strike down the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, then Pharaoh will let you go. And as you go, you will find favor with the Egyptians and they will give you gifts as you leave and you'll leave rich. And so this is what we expect. We've walked through the first 10 signs. Here comes the last one. It's all going to work out. And the patterns prepare us too. And so last week, we looked at the patterns in these signs, right? You've got these three sets of three signs, and all of them are introduced the same way, and all of them conclude the same way. And so we turn to chapter 11, and we expect to follow the pattern. And as we read chapter 11, we almost, but don't quite, do what we expect. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Exodus chapter 11 together. It's, only, it's 10 verses. It's one of the shorter chapters. And you can pull out your Bible, your phone. It's going to be on the screen. And uh, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded by, in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, so he's still in the court with Pharaoh, and, and God had said this to him prior, so now he's saying this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. 
The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we follow the pattern right up until verse 10. Well, really till verse 8, I guess. It's the first time we see Moses angry as he declares these things. But he's, he's doing what he's done before. He's telling Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. Over and over again, he's told Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. And every time it's happened, and every time Pharaoh said no, or said yes and then changed his mind um, as soon as the, pers- the, the suffering was finished. This time, he, Moses tells, them, tells him what's going to happen. And then, hot with anger, he leaves And we get a summary. We get a second summary, shorter than the first. So we've had the summary at the beginning. The Lord had said this to Moses, so Moses said this to Pharaoh. He's being obedient. Now, God had said this to Pharaoh, and then we get this summary not of what's about to happen, but what's already happened. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. And and we're wondering why we get these summaries and why, why we're not just reading about the next thing that happens. And if, in eager expectation for the Exodus to be fulfilled, you continue reading in chapter 12 to find out what happens and how it is that God lets his people go, you don't find the answer. Because in Exodus chapter 12 we read, the Lord said to Moses, so now God is talking to Moses again, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Say, what? What does that have to do with anything? Why are you telling me to remake my calendar? Like, where's, where's the death that you promised, and the freedom, and the rescue, and this is the first month? That's great, God, but let's get on with this. Um, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. <coughs> excuse me, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are determined the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. It's like, wait a second. (laughs) Why, God, are you telling me this right now? Um, What's going on? And, And what you get here is a pause in the narrative and 28 verses of instructions for a feast and a festival. We don't see... The, 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 the Lord coming in and destroying the firstborn. We don't see Pharaoh's heart softening. We don't see the people leaving. We get nearly a whole chapter instead of, of fairly detailed, I just read one couple verses of it to you, one piece, fairly detailed instructions on what these people are supposed to do. You take this spotless lamb on the 10th day, and then on the 14th day, you slaughter it, and you take its blood, and you paint your door the doorposts, and the lintel with its blood. And then you take that lamb and you roast it whole on the fire and you eat all of it. And if anything's left, it must be burnt. And while you're eating, you must eat in haste with your garments tied up ready for running, your staff in your hand, and no leaven in your bread because you are going to leave Egypt quickly. This is the Lord's Passover. And on that night, 
on the 14th night with blood on your door and lamb roasted for dinner, the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, or the angel of death, depending on the translation, will come over all of the land of Egypt and destroy the firstborn, human and animal, of every home that is not covered in the blood of the lamb. So many things change here. As you keep reading the instructions, you find out that God is not just giving these instructions to Israel and Moses for that time in Egypt. We're told that they will do this throughout all generations. In these 28 verses, the past and present, or present and future meet. They come together. Before the Exodus is even finished, it's framed not merely as a, an event that is about to happen, but as an event that will ripple and reverberate for the entire history of the people of God. Each aspect of this meal is symbolic. Remembrance of being passed over, that is, as death comes into the land of Egypt, these homes are passed over and saved. Bitter herbs for the bitter years of slavery in Egypt, unleavened bread to remind them of the haste in which they leave. Um, we're told later, so this is now in Deuteronomy, this festival and this feast, the instructions are given again, that all people when, of Israel, all the people of God, when they come into this feast, will say this of themselves, my father were generations out. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our misery, toil, and oppression, and brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given to me. This becomes a moment not just of rescue from Egypt, but of remaking a national identity. The narrative stops, we get all these instructions, the future and the present meet, because this is not just for this generation, but for all generations that follow. And for the first time in the whole Exodus journey, the Israelites themselves get involved. No other sign has required anything of them. Even at the very beginning of the story, and he said, you might remember us talking about this last week, Moses goes to them and he says, God's going to rescue you, and they can't hear him because of the cruel oppression and their broken spirit. And, and God moves ahead anyway, right? Like the fact that they're hopeless and broken and despairing doesn't stop God. They haven't had to do anything. But here, as we come to the last and final sign, the most powerful moment in this journey so far, they have to do something. They're not being set apart purely based on ethnicity anymore. Up until this point, every distinction that has been made, it's the land of Goshen or the people of Israel are free from that suffering, and Egypt and the rest of the land and the people of Pharaoh are not free from that suffering. But this time, if they want to be free from this suffering, if they want to be passed over, they have to take a lamb, and they have to kill it, and they have to put its blood on their door, which 
is a really strange thing to have to do. Um, It's why the author of Hebrews tells us that Moses kept the first Passover by faith. Because God gives you this word and you have to trust him. You have to say, not only do I believe that you are about to do what you say you are about to do and kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I also have to believe that in order f- that that's going to happen to me unless I listen. Right? And so faith and obedience, which always belong together, they're inseparable, come together in this blood on the doorway that protects the homes of the Israelites. As we read on in the narrative, the people are fully and completely obedient. They do act in faith. But Pharaoh's heart isn't mentioned at all, right? Again, we expect, so we keep reading, the narrative picks up after those 28 verses, and and we read of God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He comes, the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn in all the land except for in those homes that have followed God's instructions. Um, And when Pharaoh re-enters the scene, he is telling them that they have to go. But he does it in a series of commands. Get up, leave, go worship, take your flocks, go, and you must bless me. It's a picture of a king who wants to still be in charge. He's defeated, but he won't admit it. His words are full of hollow bluster. Bless me before you leave. He expects something in exchange for his final lenience of letting them go. Still, everything is fulfilled exactly as spoken. The firstborn of Egypt are killed. An incredibly devastating blow to all of those who lost someone. Also a devastating blow theologically, because within the idea of Egyptian kingship, the divinity of the father is passed on only to the firstborn son. If the firstborn son dies, the royal line is broken. In the midst of this, Israel somehow finds favor with the Egyptians. Now, I have always found that a really odd part of this story. (laughs) After everything that God has done through the people and through Moses, they find favor. And all I I, I think, I think you can explain it with a few different things, but these are guesses because the story doesn't tell us. I think they understand the victory of God. They understand that Pharaoh and his, the power he claims has been shown up, that there's one greater than Pharaoh. And so they do hold Moses in high regard as the messenger and the leading figure of the God Yahweh. I also think, and we see this in the narrative of the signs, that along the way, a number of Egyptians do know that Yahweh is the Lord. They get it. And we are told that they fear the Lord and they start obeying his instructions. They start taking his warnings and avoiding the plagues. It's likely that some of them had experienced the mercy of God along the way, perhaps even from the people of Israel. I don't know, that's just a guess. But if the land of Goshen is not getting hit by hail and you let your Egyptian friend come into the land of Goshen with you so that he and his livestock and his family are not devastated by it, they're going to be grateful. I don't know if they did that or not. It's just a guess. One way or the other... The people of Egypt look upon Israel with favor and give them great gifts as they go. And this fulfills the covenant of God with Abraham, who God told Abraham, your descendants will go into the land of Egypt and they will stay there for 400 years and when they leave, they'll leave rich. And here they go. Despite slavery, 
for a long period of time, despite at least 80 years of slavery, they leave rich because God is that good when he fulfills his promises. And instead of hearing about Pharaoh's heart, we hear about the heart of the people of Egypt who are determined, and it's the exact same word in Hebrew, hazak. Pharaoh's will has been stiffened the whole time as we've walked through this narrative. That's that hardened idea. Here, the people's hearts are, and we don't usually translate it hardened because it doesn't make any sense, so we translate it determined, but it's the same word. They are determined that the Israelites leave. It's the heart of the people that has changed rather than the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not done. We're not going to get there today, but by the time you get to the end of chapter 13 and read on to, the chap- to chapter 14, Pharaoh's changed his mind again, and he's going to keep chasing them, right? So Pharaoh isn't finished, but the people are. And as we're reading all this and understanding what's going on in the nation of Egypt, we find this strange passage where we're told that, you know, 600,000 Israelites left on foot and there were women and children with them, and, and up with them went a mixed multitude. Who are these mixed multitude? Right? I told you this is strange. This story takes a very strange turn here. Um, where did they come from? It's not surprising to me that the salvation of God, as he rescues the people of Israel from the land of Egypt and from slavery and oppression, overflows. Because that's how God works. His blessings overflow. But are some of these Egyptians? Are they just other nations and other peoples that had also been enslaved by Egypt? Like, we don't know. We don't know who they are, and we don't know why it is that they get to go with Israel. But right when we're wondering all of those things, we hear more regulations about Passover. We hear more laws. So starting in verse 43 of chapter 12 and going on to verse 16 of chapter 13, so another, I didn't count this ahead of time, what is that, eight, another 25 verses of laws. And I want to say, so many of us have had this experience where we start, sit down and we say, I'm going to read the Bible. And you start in Genesis because we read books from back to front. And you read through Genesis and it's story after story after story and that's really cool. And then you get to Exodus and it's story after story after story till you hit Exodus chapter 12 and suddenly you're reading about feasts and festivals and it's a little odd. And you bear with it because it's half a chapter and then there's another half a chapter here in 12 and 13 and you keep reading and it's stories and stories and stories till you get to about halfway through Exodus. And suddenly you're in the law books, and there seems to be no end in sight, right? There's laws for most of the last half of Exodus, and then you try to keep reading, and you get to Leviticus, and it's all laws, and then you try to keep really reading, and you get to Numbers, and it's, and, and it's all genealogy, um, and, and then you try to keep reading, and you get to Deuteronomy, and it's all laws, and you're like, what happened to the story? When you're reading the scriptures, especially the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and laws interrupt the narrative, It's not an accident. They're always there for a reason. And yes, some of those sections are long, okay? And some of them are difficult. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk through the last half of Exodus just like we're talking through the first half of Exodus. So I hope that's exciting for you. I've had a lot of fun preparing for it. It is. It's really neat stuff. Um, The laws don't interrupt by accident. The authors of Scripture weren't like, ah, you know, I'm bored of the story. Here, have some laws. Um, they put them in there to tell you some really important things. So we read in chapter 12 about the laws around the festival 
and around. And it's the festival of unleavened bread, by the way, and I didn't talk about that much. I talked more about the meal of Passover. It's because, and I'm going to come back to this, I said it already, it's because this sign is not just about them getting out of Egypt. It's about a definite redefinition or a rebirth of the people of God. It's about who they are called to be. Now, we read about this mixed multitude coming up with Israel, and we find laws that tell you who can eat the Passover and who can take part in the festival because they're answering a question. Who is this mixed multitude? They're the people who've decided that though they're not Israelites, they're going to become members of the people of God. And you can do that. And that's what these laws are about. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or hired worker may not. An alien living among you, so now this is the instruction. So if you're just a foreigner or a temporary resident, no good. But an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Passover must first be circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. You want to be a part of the people of God? Okay, you can do that. But it requires something of you. It requires you to enter into the same covenant as all of the people of Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And then you can take part in the Passover meal and in the festival of the unleavened bread. It's... It's, that, it's the same thing that Israel goes through. Israel doesn't start as the people of God. And the scriptures are very clear around the call of Abraham and around all of his descendants that God didn't pick Abraham because he was awesome and better than everybody. That God didn't rescue the nation of Israel from Egypt because they particularly deserved his rescue. He did it because he picked them. And he picked them with a purpose. It's not about them he chose them to be a blessing to the nations by carrying his name and his way of life into the world. And the start of that is circumcision, right? You take on this sign of being the people of God. Now, here, we're being given the next signs of being the people of God. You be circumcised, all of your male children, and you celebrate the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And we add a third one as we get into chapter 13. And this one is probably really odd for us as modern readers and people. And if you read chapter 13, I would expect you have questions. Um, because in chapter 13, we read about the consecration of the firstborn. We read that from now on, every firstborn male, every firstborn male animal, or every firstborn male human belongs to the Lord. And they must either be part of worship, which is to say a sacrifice, or they must be redeemed. Something must take their place. And so instructions are given here where all the clean animals, all the animals that are acceptable in worship, need to be offered as a sacrifice. The firstborn male of, of all those clean animals are offered as a sacrifice in worship to God. And all of those things that are not acceptable, either unclean animals or people, because <laughs> neither of those are acceptable to make a sacrifice and offer in worship, um, you bring something in their place, and thus you redeem them. Now, later on in the Pentateuch, we will read how the entire tribe of Levi 
takes the place of all of the firstborn males of Israel. They substitute, and rather than being offered as a sacrifice, they are the ones who lead and serve in worship. So they are still ta- it's the same thing. They're taking part in worship and sacrifice for the Lord. Now, I said this, that's all really strange, right? There's a couple things to say about this. First of all, one of the points that is clearly being made as we read through Exodus 13 and the, the consecration of the firstborn is that all of Israel is now God's three times over. He's their creator, and he's created all things, and so all things belong to him. He is the one who has chosen them and called them. This is the covenant with Abraham. He will be their God. They will be his people. They, the, the biblical word for this is election. Um, he has elected them. Now, election can never be taken apart from mission. We sometimes think of election and we, we think like, well, they got chosen and other people didn't. But they are chosen for the nations, not because they're better, but so they can serve and be a blessing. So, created, elected or chosen, and now saved, redeemed. Um, God has come and he has rescued his people. And so they are thrice, three times his. And they recall these things. All of these things are recalled in these different either rites around circumcision or feasts, the Passover meal, or festivals of unleavened bread or the consecration of the firstborn. These things are all designed to remind Israel regularly, again and again and again, that they belong to God. And it's not just a little bit of belonging. (laughs) It goes all the way down. They are, as a people, set apart for God. And what, what happens when you read this about the consecration of the firstborn is it starts to make you think it should. So the scriptures are meant to be reread, okay? They're meant to be read, and then you get stuff in your head, and you go back and you read them again. And having read to the end, you're like, oh, wait, there's these connections here. There's these things that tie together. And you go back to this whole bit about killing the lamb and sprinkling the blood on the doorposts and doing it with hyssop, and you're like, hold on a second. This is a sacrifice. This isn't just some weird thing where we kill a lamb and put the blood on the door. This is actually the pattern of worship that's carried forward throughout the entire Pentateuch. The entire first five books of the Bible involve killing a ram or a lamb and then taking the blood and sprinkling that blood either on the altar or on the priests for the consecration of Aaron and all of his sons. Um, And in each of these cases, what's being done is a setting apart and making holy. It's a purification thing, um, which is also always about being saved. Because if you haven't been made clean to enter the presence of the holy God, you die. Because you can't go into his presence safely without having done the things that set you apart. And some of that things, they're very small, right? Like Moses at the burning bush. God says, take, your, take off your sandals. This is holy ground, right? It's just a little thing, but it's still something that is required of him in action to acknowledge the presence of a God who is so much more powerful and more righteous and more good and more holy. And that word holy, this idea of ultimately being the source of life, um, 
that you have to set yourself apart in some way. And the whole people here get to take part of that through the Exodus. So let me pull this together because that's a lot. The Passover brings together the notion of being saved from death, slavery, and oppression with, at the same time, the sacrificial meal, the setting apart of the people of God, and the consecration or purification, the making holy of that same people, so that they can be in the presence of God. You pull all of those things together and you've got Passover. Let me do that again, but more slowly. <laughs> Passover is the means by which the notion of salvation from death is introduced. Um, salvation from slavery and deliverance is evidence throughout this whole narrative, but it's this one that brings death into the picture. That's why Passover is a commemoration not only of the Exodus, but of salvation from the angel of death. And this goes back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, and they should die, but they don't. God gives them provision. They have to leave the garden. They're no longer able to be in his presence, but they're still saved from death. Enoch, Noah, Lot, and more, each of them walks a journey in which God saves them from death. And once you've gone back to Genesis, you remember that we only need to be saved from death because of sin, because of disobedience. And so that gets tied in here too. With this salvation from death comes a meal, but not just any meal. It's a Passover meal that involves a sacrifice and a process of setting apart and making clean. This is underlined by the animal needing to be spotless, by the importance of what you do with the meat, by the fire consuming what's not eaten, and by the instructions regarding clothing, right? Because these are all ways that you choose in action to set yourself apart. It's not because, like, you think about Moses taking off his shoes when he's sitting or standing before the burning bush. It's not because shoes are evil, okay? Let's be clear about this. It's because... Then, as often the case in cultures today, taking off your shoes is a sign of honor and respect. You don't do that for just anybody, right? Um, same thing with all of the symbols that are being given to the Israelites. Each one of them has meaning that's added because of the Passover, but also precedes it, right? To kill a spotless lamb, that's an incredibly valuable, that's a, like in an agricultural society, your lambs are not things you eat very often, right? Because that's a lot of money and a lot of investment and a lot of time and, and future potential that you're giving up by doing this. And so to do that, you only do that, you would only kill a lamb for a particularly special occasion or for a particularly important person. And this is all independent of, of Passover, but you can see how God takes something that is already communicating clearly the people of Israel at the time in their culture and in their day, and then he makes it even more, right? He makes it even bigger. The blood and the hyssop both point to the purifying nature of this sacrifice. Again, this, is, this predates Passover, but it becomes even more here. So when God makes the covenant with Abraham, they divide an animal and the blood goes into a trench and they, they seal the covenant by walking through this because blood is this symbol of life 
and of sacrifice and of costly giving and of real commitment. Um, Consecration has always been about setting apart for the Lord in terms of the way that the scriptures read. When something is consecrated, when something is made holy, when something is set apart, it's set apart for the Lord. And to be set apart for the Lord is to be set apart for life. That which is ultimately removed or taken away or covered over in these processes is death. For neither death nor sin have any place in the presence of the holy God who is the God of all life. Later sacrificial rituals in Israel will mirror all of these elements. The slaughter of the ram, the sprinkling of the blood, the eating of the meat, the unleavened bread. These form the central part of all of the sacrificial rituals. Um, The most close parallel is Aaron and his sons being set apart as priests. This is because what is happening in the Passover, I'm just repeating myself more slowly. I hope you caught that. What's happening in the Passover is that the nation of Israel is being set aside as a holy nation unto the Lord. The people as a whole are being consecrated. And this fits because God has told them again and again that he is making them to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of his servants and his worshipers who will be a blessing to the nation with his word. That's why it's here for the first time that something is asked of Israel. Because you can't go through that process of becoming the people of God, a kingdom of priests, without doing something along the way. God can rescue without us. And he often does, right? And that's the whole story of the Exodus. That no matter how bad things seem to have gotten, no matter how hard or how hopeless or how broken or how despairing we feel, God can save. He doesn't need them to hear. He wants them to because he wants them to know. But he doesn't need them to. But God can't make us be his people without us accepting the call. It doesn't work that way. And so here, we have the people being told, you have to do this. It's an incredible moment in the story. There's a reason that it gets put into a feast and a festival. And even this is the first month of your year, right? The symbols and the ways that they're supposed to remember go right down to the calendar. It, it It goes all the way, right? As it should. Now, what we need to remember is that this all hooks to us today. All the same things that I've just said that are true about God over the last 25 minutes, or longer, sorry, um, (laughs) is still true today. God can still save today without us. He does all the time. There are people in this room whose stories I know who will talk to you about the fact that they didn't do anything. Like there was no, but God came and God was amazing and God met them and like, they were hardly even looking, right? But then the follow-up from that is that there's a call to be his people, to walk with him, to be prepared in such a way that we can enter into his presence. What's changed is that we don't do this through the blood of a lamb like they did because of Jesus. But if you read 
We read Revelations, Jessica read Revelations chapter 5. If you read Revelation, if you read the Gospel of John especially, but the other Gospels as well, if you read Paul as he writes about Jesus, all over the place they're talking about Passover. Beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is out preaching and he sees Jesus coming down to the shore and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. That's not just some random thing that he's saying. He's using Passover language. This is the lamb that God has sent so that his blood might cover over your household and death may pass over and you can be rescued in the same way that the people of Israel are. But it doesn't stop there, just like it didn't stop there for Israel. It's not just that they're getting rescued from death. They're being set apart and consecrated and made holy so that they can be the people of God, entering into his presence and going out into the world in order to be a blessing, show his way, and bring his word and his life and his rescue. All of that gets tied together in Jesus in exactly the same way that it's tied together in the Exodus. He does that for us on a bigger, deeper, broader, pick all your more language than the Exodus ever did. You look at salvation in the Exodus, and the people are being saved physically and economically and relationally, and from the perspective of a society, they're also being saved spiritually because they're being brought back into relationship with God and worship. And that's the full picture of salvation, and that's what Jesus does. But the promised land that Jesus leads us into isn't the land of Canaan, it's the kingdom of God. The oppression that Jesus rescues us from is not the oppression of slavery to Pharaoh, but the oppression of sin and death and the kingdom of Satan, right? Everything is, it it all lines up, but it's bigger. It's bigger than the Exodus because the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the coming and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The question for the Israelites was, do you believe the word of God? Do you believe that he is coming tonight to kill all the firstborn and that in order for you not to suffer the same fate, you need to kill a lamb and put its blood on your door? If you do and you would like to be saved, then obey. The question for us is pretty much the same. Do you believe the word of God about Jesus? That he is the one who came, who was sent by God, who came to die for us, to take our place so that death could pass over. That if we participate with him, we will be set apart and able to enter into the presence of God and have a great promise about the future. And if you do, then obey and follow the word. I don't know where each of you stand this morning. Obedience initially to the word of Jesus looks like a prayer of faith. It's when you turn to God in your heart and your mind and you say to him, I do believe and I do want those things. So I accept you as Lord and I accept the work you have done on the cross and I ask to be covered in your blood if you want to use the strange language. But you can also use language like to be forgiven and to be saved and to be welcomed one day into the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's not magic words as you pray this prayer, but you pray that prayer of faith and obedience. And that's the first step. But the rest follow, right? 
because you keep living a life of obedience to the words of Jesus. If you believed him for that, you should believe him for the rest too, <laughs> not just the one piece. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, then I would encourage you to do so. The promises of God are very much the same as they were to the people of Israel and Egypt, just bigger. That he has come to rescue, that he has come to redeem and to save and to call you out and to make you part of his people and bring you into his presence and lead you into the promised land. I hope you want that. And if you do, begin in that prayer. If you're here this morning and you have already done that and you're already on that journey and part of these people, then on the one hand, I want to say get ready because the rest of the story is going to hit us hard. <laughs> on the other hand, I want to say, remember, you are thrice his. You are three times God's and your life should reflect that in obedience at every level. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for the Passover. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you that you come and save when we cannot. Thank you, Lord, for your call to be a part of your people, to come into your presence. May we do so even this morning, Lord God. Cover us over, free us from death and from sin and from Satan, and lead us in your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.